0: It's a bit of a story. If you have time, I'll tell it. It starts with me being a big opponent of deconstruction. When deconstruction emerged, I first became aware of it in the 70s. I hated it. I I hated the word. I hated the fact that all these new people were coming in with the jargon and so forth. And I thought it was phony. I thought a lot of the ideas were BS, you know.
1: I'm talking with Gerald Graff. I asked him how he came to be the editor of one of the books which has most influenced this series. Jacques Derrida's Limited Incorporated. And not just the editor, but Derrida's interlocutor, in a lengthy Q&A with which the book concludes, under the heading Toward an Ethic of Discussion.
0: When I wrote a book, Literature Against Itself. It was an attack on deconstruction and other new methodologies, new theories, although I was never anti-theory. I just thought it was a bad theory. I got attacked as being anti-theory. Anyway, that persisted throughout the 80s, Literature Against Itself was 1979, and I got a reputation as one of the leading debunkers of the new methodologies, including deconstruction. And I was at Northwestern, and Northwestern hired a comparatist, Timothy Bati, from Cornell, who was written on demand and who was a deconstructionist. Anyway, the School of Criticism and Theory was located at Northwestern in the early 80s. And I went to some of the symposia there, and Bodhi was at one of those. We, we didn't know each other. I got up at one of the symposia and made some kind of attack on deconstruction. Boddy, who was in the audience, made a uh, caustic comment about the criticism police or something referring to me, trying to police and shut down the deconstructionists. And so it was quite nasty exchange between Boddy and me afterwards body and I walked up and we started talking and we started arguing. I realized I liked him and we became friends. And this was happening frequently where I'd meet the deconstructionists who I had attacked in print and I'd meet them and I started realizing, wait a minute, these people are smart. They're not BS artists. They're smart. In some ways, they're telling me things I hadn't thought about at all, about how language works and so forth. Adi at some point pointed out, and I had become the director of the Northwestern University Press in the early 80s, which was restarting after a period of dormancy. then. Adi said, somebody should publish uh, a book, and Northwestern already had this phenomenology series. So Northwestern Press already had an emphasis on continental philosophy. So he said, "Why, why don't you look into publishing signature event context and the exchange with John Searle, the debate with John Searle, as a book. It would probably sell a lot of copies. That sounded attractive. The press was looking for ways to make money. So anyway, we explored it. That ended up with me writing to Derrida and asking if he would submit to an interview with me within the book. So I went in as an enemy of deconstruction, but realized even before going in that Derrida was being treated as a clown. A lot of philosophy departments were treating him as if he was just unserious japester who was incoherent, making no sense and so forth. And I could see that I needed to be respectful toward Derrida if I was going to engage him in any kind of written dialogue. But I went in as an enemy, as an opponent. And the questions that I asked him in the interview that we did reflect that. What do you mean indecidability, or how can you say that meaning is unstable and so And I tried to trap him on various contradictions. And I was surprised, first of all, that his answers were totally cogent and rigorous. And I could see that I was in with a real heavyweight and really serious thinker who was as serious about problems of meaning and so forth as I was or more serious. Having gone in as an opponent, I came out as if not a total acolyte, I came out being convinced that much, if not all, of what he was saying made total sense, and I became converted to some of the deconstructionist doctrines, particularly this general idea that nothing just is itself; that identity itself is structured by difference and conflict. Anyway, this led to my having dinner with Gary Don, meeting him a few times, and when I met him, the first question he asked me was. Basically, what's my shtick as a a critic? And I said, I've been arguing that we should teach the conflict. And Derrida said, oh, teach the conflict, eh? He said, I like that. But we must not master the conflict, eh? And I said, I don't think there's any danger of that. But it was really a wonderful experience for me. It kind of changed my whole world
1: that's phenomenal thank you so much for that piece of the history not just of literary studies but of literary theory there i think it's fascinating that the sort of idea of teaching the conflict has a deridian analog a deconstructionist analog and i wonder following from limited incorporated one of the things that got me so interested in it is an idea that I think comes out in the afterwards that part of the role that a critic plays, part of the role that literary studies plays, is trying to hold fast to meanings, even though Derrida says it's a futile exercise, that that it's always going to be a failure, that we are always going to have a certain fluidity, a certain degradation of the text into places that we cannot imagine it going. That part of the role the discourse around literature plays is to hold on to the kinds of meanings that do mean something in their moment. And of course, one of the examples he gives is apartheid, a term that he wants to have a fixed meaning and to refer to a specific set of events for as long as possible, recognizing that eventually it won't, that eventually it will become fuzzier, it'll become cliched, whatever. But that part of what literary discourse can do is hold on to those meanings for just a little bit longer, right, slow their erosion. And
0: I think Derrida Derrida was very aware, and I think maybe you and I were both surprised at how uh, stubbornly Derrida who was supposedly the great advocate of free play and ambiguity and undecidability and so forth. No, he, he was in some sense, but he saw the need, he saw the absolute importance of not letting a term like apartheid just slip into meaning anything you want it to mean. And I think, of course, where this really surfaced too, was the DeMond case when demands Journalism was discovered in which he said it wouldn't be a bad thing if the Jews just got shipped to Madagascar. Wouldn't have been any great big loss for European culture. You can't mess with what that means. Everybody knows what it means, and the common sense assumption we know what that means can't be messed with. I don't think Derrida and the deconstruction has handled that. I mean, they should have said that. They should have said that a lot more clearly, and I think they hurt their reputation. I don't think they were complicit in it, I think there was a kind of club loyalty that they were attacked so viciously. And I've talked to, and I became friendly with Jonathan Culler, somebody who I, I admire and like very much and learned a lot from. Jonathan Culler was the press reader for professing literature and helped me enormously to make the argument that I, I wanted to make, but I think that they were attacked so viciously that it it became hard for them to acknowledge that, yeah, some of the critics might have a point that we do need to hold fast to certain kinds of meanings. They didn't acknowledge that enough. And I think Derrida could have acknowledged it even more than he did. But, uh, you know, I can understand that they were so embattled, that it was hard to make concessions.
1: Yeah, that's a fascinating well, lesson for our moment. When I talk to people across literary studies, that feeling of entrenchment, I think is a kind of consistent theme. The feeling of being embattled, at basically every level in national politics in state funding in the administration of the university in the internecine fighting over various streams of funding but then also about the sort of methods that will best serve what resources are left to go around to think about the deconstructionists and the moment of high theory as being one in which they felt that same sense of embattledness and a desire to just hold on to their sort of class identity, e- even in the face of something like that scandal. Yeah.
0: Now, I think it comes up in another similar context. is the um, politicization of literary studies we've been talking about. If you talk to, uh, I don't know, Fred Jameson would be one example. Well, I shouldn't single him out. But if you talk to the academics who are identified with strongly political approaches to literature, privately, they will often acknowledge that, yeah, there's a lot of nonsense or a lot of doctrinaire silliness that has passed for politicized criticism. But they're reluctant to say that in public because they don't want to give aid and comfort to the enemy. And I think that's a big mistake. Orwell has a great essay. It's called Playing Into the Hands Of. It's one of his short newspaper editorials. And it's about how the left makes the big mistake of not acknowledging things like Stalinism. And He's talking in the context of Stalinism and authoritarian kinds of leftism that the British left would not acknowledge in, in the 40s because they didn't want to play into the hands of the conservatives. I mean, he says look, the truth is going to come out anyway, and it just hurts your own cause when you evade you, you it.
1: Welcome to the American Band, from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. In literary studies, we have a tendency to use words like conversation, debate, and discourse, metaphorically, to describe textual exchanges, or even entire corpuses of criticism, which share a topic, but no explicit dialogue. And when dialogue does happen within such a corpus, it is frequently referred to as an intervention, a critique, a debunking, an argument, or as Gerald says, an attack. The convention sometimes taught in graduate programs Is that your inclusion in a critical conversation must come at somebody else's expense. Criticism is competition for scarce resources, war for territory, publish or perish. Derrida calls this process of antagonism, exclusion, and claim staking the violence of the academic world, which at first seemed to me a pretty dangerous hyperbole. One of those metaphorical appropriations of colonization which has the potential to confuse and dilute our recognition of the real thing. Violence is of bodies and blood, not unexamined assumptions, harsh words, and personal grievance nurtured over coffee and conditions of privilege. But these days I'm not so sure. For one, our conditions across professional criticism are not so privileged. And the signatures we place on our collective knowledge making contribute to an illusion of meritocratic competition, which further erodes those conditions. The myth of criticism as ink and paper dispatches between rival ivory towers obscures how often the people engaged in such discourse regard each other as friends, and how often their textual exchanges extend from real conversations and debates over spans of decades a lengthy collaborative process that is often rendered invisible in the final product. How many collegial relationships have been ruined by feelings, often legitimate, that when such a product goes to market, the labor they contributed to it is not compensated? Not enough citations, not an acknowledgement, not enough surveying of the field. I cannot possibly count the grievances of this type which have been aired in my presence, nor estimate the damage done to careers, current and perspective, in the name of them. Is that not violence? As Harry made clear last episode, the in-person process of making criticism is sometimes contentious, sometimes mildly uncomfortable, but also reliably invigorating. And as Derrida's Limited Incorporated makes clear, both in its argument And in Gerald's description of its origin, such contentious collaborations are intrinsic to, encoded within, every work of criticism, scholarly or otherwise. As Derrida puts it, he chose his title to name the entire, more or less anonymous tradition, of a code, a heritage, a reservoir of arguments, to which both he and I are indebted. To critique, Derrida insists, is to cooperate or rather to be cooperated into a society of limited responsibility knowing that his adoption of a term from a legal commercial context will be interpreted as ironic Derrida insists that he intends it as neither a joke nor a polemic but rather a reformulation of the question he asks throughout limited incorporated What is the importance of the desires and phantasms that are at stake in a proper name, a copyright, or a signature? What ownership and what liability can any individual claim over a discourse which cannot exist in isolation? How many collective projects have failed because of the order in which the names of the members have been listed? How many alliances are lost in the name of allegiance to a guild, a field, a methodological constituency, an alma fucking matter. The ethic of discussion which Derrida and Graf arrive at in Limited Incorporated is, as Derrida puts it, a sort of friendly contract in which it is clearly understood that our exchange should serve above all as an invitation to others in the course of a discussion which is both open and yet to come. I have accepted your invitation with this hope, Derrida says, and not at all with the aim of providing a finishing touch or having the last word. What matters most to me are all the symptoms that this polemical scene can make legible. These symptoms amount to an invitation to decipher the rules, the conventions, the uses, which dominate the academic space and the intellectual institutions in which we debate, with others, and also with ourselves. It is this ethic which I wish for Criticism Limited as well. This series is, at best, a diagnosis with no plan of care. It is not merely an attempt to turn the collaborative critical process into a product, but to prolong and extend that collaboration. Throughout this year, I have sometimes felt like I undertook a project that would never end, could never end, and now I realize I hope it doesn't. Limited liability means distributed responsibility. In the next segment, I'm returning to my conversation with Jed Esti, Barton Grigorian, professor of English at Penn, and author of The Future of Decline, another of the books which has most influenced this series, and we discuss the costs of failed alliances, both within the discipline and across academic disciplines. series was, to some extent, inspired by what you call this, this sort of failed alliance between journalism and academic literary studies. Earlier this year, it seemed every day there was a new mainstream publication that was coming out with some sort of obituary for English, right? And it was almost always framed specifically as English as opposed to literary studies or cultural studies. And it's something that we've talked about in a variety of these conversations has been the fact that so many of the people who were prognosticating and, and sometimes almost angry, it seemed, at English professors were people who came out of English departments, either as undergraduate or graduate students. And that moment seems very much in line with what you're saying, that there is some sort of collapse of what seemed like natural alliances between journalists and working literary critics and professors. And I I wonder if you could diagnose that a little bit further. Why is this manifesting in what seems like hostility, even beyond just a kind of failure of alliance.
2: Yeah, I think we need to create our own version of Adam Tooze's polycrisis to get at this, because there are a lot of embedded and interlocking crises. And the simplest and funniest part of it is that academia oversupplies literate, English-oriented writer, reader, researcher, thinkers who then staff and populate all the spaces in the capillary and the arterial system of American journalism and media, including podcasts Mm -hmm. and and including Hollywood. And that's why we keep going over with the chair and Lucky Hank, it's like always an English professor. If your midlife crisis person is gonna be a shabby academic, he's gonna be some kind of English professor or she. Because what we do when we're teaching undergraduates at colleges and universities, It's still incredibly compelling to young people. It taps the place where imagination and information meet. And who wants to live in either of those domains without the other, information and imagination? And yet the job market and the construction of American professional and corporate pathways doesn't give room to those people and barely does the media system, at least in a way that anyone could live on. So we have an oversupply of people with a kind of critical temper forged in the university who are constantly themselves in a kind of nostalgic and forlorn state about the impossibility of a culture or a society that sustains these ways of thinking. Yet I think it's also important not to blend it all into one big crisis and one big cauldron of bubbling sugary nostalgia. The English major isn't dead. Literary criticism isn't dead. But there is a kind of movement afoot in the last 20 years in the profession that disarticulates criticism from scholarship, to cite Joseph North's Mm -hmm. book on this subject. There is a kind of status collapse problem that John Guillory deals with in his version of the earlier this year discourse that you cited. And there is the pervasive underfunding of the arts and the sciences inside universities. The physicists are almost as worried as we are about the death of the physics major, but we don't read about that in the New Yorker. And we certainly should. Yeah. And they are all part of the instrumentalization of knowledge that a desperate, anxious society seeks short term returns for investments in knowledge production. What we are built for physicists and English professors is long term returns on knowledge. And I, I can, if you want, get more granular, and, and I'd be really interested to do so if you, if you have time, mm-hmm. about what the collapse of historicism as a governing model of literary criticism means for this exact moment. Yes. Um, but I think that would be the next step. The answer
1: to that is yes. This was a question that I, I planned to ask at some point. Your Your book ends with a... I don't know wanna call it necessarily a call to arms, but if one were to frame it that way, it would be to embrace history and specific to maybe literary and culture studies historicism. If there is any sort of trend line in literary studies over the course of my career which i started graduate school in 2005 it is that historicism is in decline right it was the primary method of my graduate school years and it seems to be falling out of favor and so what you call for at the end of the book i think runs counter to the the currents within the profession as well as you acknowledge is in some ways dangerous given the politicization of history that we are facing in the culture wars. I wanted to talk a little bit more about that because I do think that one thing I'm seeing in curriculum design, both at my institution and talking to other literary scholars who are involved in changing curriculums, is that. The literary survey has fallen out of fashion, right? Historical frameworks for teaching literature, in addition to the fall of historicism as a dominant method for our scholarship, in our teaching, it is also in decline. Given what you diagnose, the call to arms you make at the end of your book, that seems like a really unfortunate thing. You seem to be asking for us to do more history, to put history closer to the center of what we do. And so I wanted you to maybe defend historicism as this method that I think has been viewed by many as problematic.
2: Yeah, it should be. I mean, historicism as a method is so flexible and was the magical synthesis that allowed us to leave the th- the, the high theory moment and be a much more inclusive and wide ranging discipline, answerable to all kinds of people with interests in the history of literature and culture. It's the magical solution medium or the universal solvent that allowed theory and criticism and literary history to blend together eclectically in a functional version of the discipline that worked for both graduate and undergraduate education. Moreover, to get to the point, everything at the university that isn't the humanities is incredibly historically shallow, driven by you know, the call for interdisciplinary and uh, in- innovative thinking is basically a call for knowledge without legs and thinking about problems in incredibly vacuous and vapid ways. And what we have left in the humanities is the entire burden of carrying forward a a historical and contextual way of thinking. And there I'm talking about art history, music, philosophy, the history of religion, and what we do, the history of language and literature, in alliance with history proper, the discipline of history proper, which I think is the best way for us to proceed inside our institutions in terms of intellectual alliances. But in particular, the central role of English or of literary studies and cultural studies as disciplines and interdisciplines, has been to bring together what I would call historical thinking and the critique of historical thinking that's implied by historicism, which is to say it's a history of fact, but it's a history of the non-factualness of quote-unquote facts. It's a history of what Keats called negative capability, of what we might call irony, of what we other times call critique, and that is embedded in the project not of history proper but of historicism as we once practiced it centrally in this discipline. Everything else in the world around us, including in the university around us is dedicated to one of two ideas about literacy. And one is that it's organized around the history of fact. And the other is that it's organized around the history of fantasy. The precise point in which the discipline is most powerful is when it refuses that binary and blends those two in dynamic interaction. That's what we teach. That's what we see that other kinds of intellectuals and media persons don't see. And what I feel I would say about the discipline diagnostically, if you step back in this moment of decline, is that the broken dialectic of those two things produce a very strong wing of literary sociologists and book historians and institutional critics like John Guillory, who think along the lines of Bourdieu and other sociologists of culture. It's very powerful stuff. I learned so much and digital humanities is linked to that power. And then we have these new formalisms and these new kind of modes of literary appreciation, which exist as if we weren't all in love with the stuff we study already. I certainly was, even as a practicing cultural materialist or historicist doing theoretically informed work that I learned in the 1990s. I was never like, oh, these books are evil and I have to not love them. The loving them and the badness of them has always been bound together in the discipline. This is me repudiating Rita Felsky's notion that we had to relearn to appreciate and love things. To me, these two sides, appreciation, formalism, love, and sociology and history of books and institutions are fact and fantasy divorced from each other. And they represent us seeding the ground of what is distinctive about our discipline. And that is, it's keeping alive a strong contextual model of thinking about the past, and it's keeping alive a strong contextual model of understanding that narratives of the past, not facts, quote unquote, is what history is made of.
1: In one of his first public rebukes of Matthew Arnold, Mark Twain takes issue with the critics definition of civilization a term which had long infuriated him as he had recognized the colonialist and supremacist valences it carried with it since at least his first trip to Hawaii in 1866 uncharacteristically whipping his audience into patriotic fervor Twain asserts that if ever there were such a thing as a real civilization It began with the emancipation of enslaved people and the project of reconstructing the United States around the democratic principles latent in its founding. The origin of civilization lies in liberation, according to Twain, while its survival lies in literacy. The British Empire, which Matthew Arnold held up as his model for civilization, would be, Twain exclaimed, Perfectly satisfied with a newspaperless world. Monarchies have not use for that sort of dynamite. The liberating potential of the Gutenberg press lay dormant for three centuries, Twain argues, until the American Revolution, after which literacy rates skyrocketed, most rapidly in the United States, but also around the world. Tongue firmly planted in cheek, Twain says, nothing hurts me like ingratitude matthew arnold disparaged the american press who taught him how to read 15 years later in the unfinished manuscript the secret history of oedipus world empire twain imagined what the slide back into fascist theocracy would look like it would start with state control of the press mandatory consumption of propagandistic history and the unwinding of mass literacy By a conversion to a purely pictorial media free expression and the free thought which went along with it would be replaced by obligatory mastery of the dominant iconography even the political subversives who in the secret history of oedipus are disciples of mark twain bishop of new jersey would after a few generations be futilely trying to decipher a broken historical record creating useless juxtapositions of words based purely on their relative cultural capital. For instance, yellow journalism was invented by Ralph Waldo Edison, or George Washington was drowned at Waterloo and had a younger brother named Napoleon. Twain clearly understood that fundamental post-structuralist principle, mutual dependence of signs and circumstances, inevitably alter textual interpretations over time and in fact Twain speculates that reductions of literacy have the potential to render vast archives of written language incomprehensible our collective memory wiped a return to the Dark Ages as he calls it but what both Twain and Arnold are reluctant to acknowledge is that they are engaged in a shared project that the dialogue of creative and critical writing is what best preserves the links between texts and context, between language and history. It buttresses what passes for truth, the dialectic, against the incursions of propagandistic myth. The fertilizer which the tumblebug critic spreads across the field of public discourse is comprised of that rich combination of information and imagination which Jed referenced. The parasitic critic weaves the ties between words, concepts, and things, as Derrida says, the truth and reference, which are never absolutely and purely guaranteed, but can be made temporarily stable by iteration, can be made to hold fast just a little bit longer. It matters what apartheid names, and colonization, and genocide. Over the course of this series, we have highlighted a range of critical enterprises. Para-academic publications like Los Angeles Review of Books and Las Vegas Review of Books, digital communities like Brittle Paper, advocacy series like Hacking the Culture Industries, podcasts like High Theory and Remarkable Receptions, in-person programming like The Fate of Professional Reading. For the final installment in this series, I am turning to a brand new academic center, the Center for Literary Arts at Washington University in St. Louis, whose express mission is to support and enhance the connections between creative practice and scholarly research across academic disciplines. I spoke with the center's founding co-directors, the novelist, feminist publisher, and creative writing professor Danielle Dutton and the translator, modernist, scholar, and comparative literature professor, Ignacio Infante. And I asked them to describe the origins of this new institutionalized attempt to reconcile criticism and creativity.
3: The idea of developing the Center for Literary Arts came up as a way of providing an infrastructure for creative practice colleagues across our School of Arts and Sciences. And it emerged as a need, but also as an opportunity to make connections across different departments that haven't been made before. We have an outstanding MFA program in creative writing at the international level, extremely prestigious. But we also have a complete PhD for international writers, and it's also very successful. We have an amazing group of translators in different departments, in foreign languages departments. It emerges as, as an opportunity to, to make those connections, but also to provide a space to support work for faculty, but also for students who are multilingual or who are trying to connect different languages and do creative work across borders. And it fell The right time to do it. And we were also very excited to have an opportunity from the institutional support of our dean's office that saw this as a really great opportunity.
4: I came on board, I think, slightly after Ignacio, and our dean asked me to join. And I think it was probably important to have somebody who was in the creative writing program. So I teach in the English department and in the MFA writing program at WashU. Ignacio and I come from different departments and programs and have been working in really separate but related spaces on the university for a really long time now. So it's been really interesting to work together, making all these connections between what have often kind of siloed communities and programs on campus that are like doing things that would logically interest each other and overlap. But often there's just not a great amount of communication. I think this is not something unique to Washio. I hear about everywhere I go. Yeah. So it's so exciting. The very mission of the center is to try to start making all those connections and get us talking to each other and sharing our events with each other and attending our events with each other all that kind of fun
1: stuff. In the materials that you sent me prior to our recording, that was one of the things that really stood out. I think a lot of, or maybe not a lot of, I should say, there aren't even a lot of academic centers that are really thinking about the public-facing side of things. But what I found particularly idiosyncratic about the Center for Literary Arts is how you're thinking about it as a kind of interdisciplinary opportunity from inside the institution a way to bring together mediate these groups with very overlapping interests as you said but which have often been siloed because of this the sort of structures of the neoliberal institution that have developed over the last 50 some years how do you make that happen because you're not, you're not only working against a kind of infrastructural habits but Almost all of your faculty have presumably been trained under those conditions. And so it's breaking their habits as well. And I wondered how you're approaching that desire to actually draw in various interests across the university and make it feel as though they all have a place within this part of the infrastructure.
4: I'll say one thing quickly, and then maybe Nasir will have something else. But I think one of the most successful, although... Everything we're doing is brand new. Everything we're doing is like for the first time. But one of the most exciting and successful things we've put together is what we're calling the Creative Practice Workshop, which is a workshop for faculty. It's like a a residency with leave for one semester from your home department teaching and service. And it's open to any faculty in arts and sciences who are working on a creative project, so like a non-traditional scholarly project that is in some meaningful way related to their research and or teaching. Right now, I'm running the first round of it. We ran the competition last year, and we're running the first workshop this semester. And we accepted three faculty members in the first round. So one person, Edward McPherson, is from the MFA and English department, but he actually won a Guggenheim ride afterwards, so he's not joining us, but that was hooray for him. And then we also have Flora Kasim, who's from what, what we call Jimes. I'm always getting this wrong. It's Jewish, Islamic. Middle Eastern studies ah, and cultures. Okay. And then also the other professor is June Lee, and she's from East Asian languages and cultures. And and then we have our postdoc, Ashley Coley, who is a poet. And so these three people, we're workshopping their creative projects together. We meet every week. We have these like intense, beautiful, two hour long conversations. And none of us has expertise. And I'm a fiction writer. I teach fiction writing. I'm a fiction writer. So none of us has expertise in what anyone's doing. Flora is doing a kind of public facing creative nonfiction thing. June's doing translation and sort of some attendant texts around the translation. And Ashley's been working on poetry. And we have these incredible conversations exactly because we're all smart people who care about language and literature and culture, but we're coming from all these different places and expertise. And so the conversations are wonderful. I'm deeply enjoying our conversations. And so This is just the first time we're running it, but the hope is that people will never really leave. Once they leave, they'll come back and we'll start having these conversations and more and more faculty will have been a part of it. And there will be these really meaningful connections. They're invisible in a way, but they're like stretching across the campus. And so that's very exciting.
1: Those conversations are almost a product in and of themselves, right? The the way in which they will shape the people who participate is as significant as maybe the publications that come out of them.
3: Yeah, I would just uh, quickly that... I think the connecting piece is to highlight that creative work is important and in conversation with forms of research that are more institutionally Mm -hmm. supported across the board. And that creative work takes time to accomplish within, as you mentioned, the neoliberal structures that we're working with. And making that point is central to the mission of the center, but at the same time, it's central to the ethos and ethical dimension of the value of the work we're trying to do as well. And we're fortunate also to be in a city in which writing and literary arts have been central to the history of St. Louis as well. And there's a legacy there that it's also important to connect with and to establish as well.
1: Yeah. I want to ask about two things there, but I'll start with this notion of creative practice. One of the things that stood out between the way the Center for Literary Arts is presenting itself and some of the sort of analogous institutions, which, again, there aren't all that many, but this use of the phrase creative practice as opposed to something like public humanities or public scholarship. And I was curious why you, you chose to hone in on that phrase And what it means to highlight that over something like public facing work or journalistic work or popular work or whatever, all of the many pseudo synonyms that might be out there. What does creative practice mean to you and to the center?
4: This is really the heart of what our center is, serving as a home and a hub for creative practitioners on campus, students, faculty, and then in the community at large. And yeah, there are already other spaces on campus that are really devoted to humanities scholarship and humanistic social sciences and doing a great job at it. And we have a program in public scholarship. So... Really, we have this niche, this wonderful niche on campus to support creative practice faculty and students, and we're really wanting to define it as broadly as possible. So we have a colleague in dance who works on dance and the written text. We want to bring that person into conversation with someone who's doing their first creative nonfiction text and is a scholar of anti-Semitism and that person in conversation with a poet. And those are exactly the sort of interdisciplinary and inter-arts conversations we want to be having. And it feels like a really unique, particular space and support that we can offer that's not replicating what other people are doing on campus or as far as I can tell anywhere else right now.
3: Yeah, and I would add that we're really focused on process. That's something that through the meetings that we've had and Daniel and I are thinking about where are we doing, and I think your question is so brilliant, Matt, that we're trying to support the process of the work that needs to be done because it's affecting how the institution is seeing itself, I guess in a cultural marketplace, but also in terms of like how teaching can be also connected to creative practices and how students are really interested in exploring creative practices as part of the classes that they're doing. Just ways of supporting process and allowing people to find their own space in their own creative processes within the space of the university. And it seems to us seems like a, a very central idea of what universities should provide for people working in these areas. But working on models and seeing how are we developing the programming that we're put together, it seemed like a very unique thing to focus on and a dimension to focus on.
4: I'll just add, I think because Ignacio and I were the ones writing a mission statement and coming up with ideas for programming, and I'm a creative writer, as they call me. And in addition to being a scholar, Ignacio is a translator. And so I think we have this really firsthand experience of how awkwardly sometimes creative practice fits into the university space or just doesn't fit. And as a creative writer, I said this, Ignacio has heard me say this, but like in the tenure process, I have to just translate everything to make sense for me because there is no space for what I do. Like I have to explain how many of my publications are peer-reviewed, none of them are peer-reviewed, or all of them are peer-reviewed, because there is no peer-review in the world that I... So just in a very foundational sense, creative practice, it needs a little attention, you know, in academic spaces.
1: Yeah, and that leads directly into the question of, like, why the literary arts because one of the things i that really excites me about centers like these and again the few that there are and many of them seem to be either brand new or reformulating something and what excites me is that it is recognizing that humanities disciplines and humanities academia can fill a role in the gap that has been left behind by the consolidation and conglomeration of publishing and also the sort of austerity mechanisms working upon journalism one thing that humanities academia has the potential to do within a digital environment is create An outlet that has the the support within an institution, when you have an institution that is willing to do that support, that then actually has this sort of broadcast function and potential uh, and can fill all sorts of niches. But one of the things that challenges these kinds of projects, I think, is changing what it means to be literary. And I was wondering whether the the choice of literary arts and how you are thinking about what it will mean to produce works of creative practice in an environment where what we might think about as the kind of standard genres and mediums of literature are sh- are shifting into digital spaces, into audiovisual spaces, potentially at some point, maybe into virtual spaces, how, how are are you thinking about what it means to be literary in this rapidly evolving media ecosystem?
3: That's a great question. That's another amazing question. We are actively thinking those kind of questions right now as we embark in this process. And on the one hand, both Daniel and I have had different experiences. So I work as a literary translator for Random House in their Spanish language imprint, which, which are all over the Spanish world, but they're based mostly in, in Barcelona. And it's a conglomerate. It's part of the largest conglomerate. It's not part of Penguin Random House. So that experience and that I did that when I was very young. It really shaped the kind of work that I do as a scholar as well in terms of understanding that literature is part of this larger market but in which it's, it's allowing spaces for creative voices to emerge, but at the same time, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So I think that's changing. And at the same time, and I think I don't, Danielle has a very different experience in terms of the publishing world that she's involved in. But it's also the question of what does it mean to be to produce literary arts, twenty twenty three. How how can we think about the processes and what it means to find your creative voice now in relation to artificial intelligence? So it's it's a very fluid. But it's, so it's very exciting. It's complicated. It's complex. I go back to Walter Benjamin's work in, in thinking about how does the the production of of art relate to the larger forces, you know, questions of technology, questions of of history, to and it seems like there's something about the literary arts as a space that requires both very creative ways of thinking about it, but also the the the, the importance of scholarly work and also scholarly work that is bridging some of these spaces at the same time.
1: Yeah. I love that piece in particular. And that's something that we have tried to talk about on in this series, too, is that w- whatever kinds of accessible public scholarship are being produced out of academia or the para-academy, as we have sometimes called it in this series, it, we still need the specialist, right? What I really like about what you're describing is this idea that Creative practice is something that is founded upon this sort of deep engagement with rigorous kinds of research that then people who do that kind of work have to learn how to turn it into something else. And that there's a lot to be gained in that process as well. Presenting rigorous research for specialists, turning it into something for a larger public, the the specialists will themselves learn from that process. That, I think, is a really Mm -hmm. exciting thing that benefits every member of the community.
4: In terms of the idea of this very specialized neoliberal academic system that we live inside of, I mean, I actually think... We've gotten a lot of people saying, what do you mean creative practice? And what do you mean literary arts? And I think we pretty productively keep trying to push back and say, I don't know, why don't you tell me what you're thinking of? Because we want it to be as broad and open as possible. The creative practice workshop, for example, is not limited to scholars in the humanities. Ignacio just gave this example in one of our meetings recently, like maybe there's a math professor who's writing some crazy book of poems about numbers, and we really want to support that and have that person be part of our conversation and if you're doing something with dance and language i want to know more about it and or some computer gaming stuff like i want to keep the idea of what literary means and what creative practice means as open as possible to keep these conversations as rich and complicated as possible
1: i did want to go back to something that ignacio said earlier and that is, what is the relationship between the Center for Literary Arts and St. Louis? And I have a special effect for St. Louis. I lived there for six years, and I, I agree with you. It's a fascinating city. And so I, I definitely was curious, like, how, how is the center seeing its public and maybe also some of its archive as being related to the, the city?
4: Our, we, our postdoc, Ashley, was in the actually the archives at WashU today and yesterday looking for materials related to William Gass's center that he had on campus that was, now I'm forgetting the name, the what was it? International, it was like an international writer center.
1: I was there when that center was there. I, yes. I was a student when that center was wow. there, yeah. And
4: a lot of colleagues have been telling us about what he was offering and what was valuable about that. Like what, in terms of legacy, I know this is still on campus, but it's, Part of St. Louis's legacy, too. What could we be pulling forward from what Bill was doing with that center? And she's down there looking for things that we could actually physically bring into our center to have a literal connection to that archival history. Okay, but Ignacio, what were you going to say?
3: So I'm not from St. Louis. I'm originally from Granada, a so city in the south of Spain, which also has its own literary history. But arriving to St. Louis in 2009, I realize that there is a, a really fascinating fabric of, of literary arts in the city that goes in different periods, different historical moments, in different modes, different forms of literature, too, from fiction, poetry, playwriting. And it's. I think it's probably connected to the geographic area of St. Louis as a, as a city in, in the Midwest, but also connected to the Mississippi River and the, the kind of, like, connections that have been established in in the city, and our university has been connected to some of these spaces, but we also have to try to reconnect in, in different ways, and just a truly meaningful connection with the larger history of American literature, U.S. literature, to be more precise, and how that plays out across the states, but also in terms of institutionally, how can the university reflect that legacy and that connection It's something that we're really invested in. They're publishing houses based in the city, including Dorothy Press, which which is Danielle's press. I don't know, Danielle, if you want to talk a little bit about that and and the the location of of Dorothy in St. Louis and that legacy as well.
4: Oh, yeah. Dorothy actually started in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, and then we moved it here when I got the job at WashU. But we love being in the Midwest, and I feel like we're part of a collection of presses in the Midwest that are doing really interesting work. $2 Radio in Columbus, Ohio is a great example. And they hold this festival called the Flyover Fest because we're in flyover country. But being outside of the mainstream of culture and publishing in particular is, in my opinion, very fruitful creatively. I think it's a great place in which to make literature and think and write and publish and talk about it. But yeah, we are really excited to have community partners. We're still figuring all of this out. Yeah,
1: yeah. naturally. I realize, like you said, you're still working these things out. But are you thinking about the center's role as a kind of arbiter between the scholars who are producing and finding ways to migrate their research into creative practice and some form of publisher? Whether that is a conventional publisher, or whether that is a a sort of digital publisher, or whether that is maybe publishing through the center in some way. Do you see the role of the center as being one of placing this work in the world in various venues?
4: That's interesting. I think... Up to now, which is still brand new, no, we have not been thinking in that way. And I think for the very reason that Ignacio mentioned earlier, which is that we're really focused on process and the connections that need to happen, the time that needs to be given, the conversations that need to happen. And there are other venues on campus that focus more on like the product version of, of all of this, but we wanted to create this space that was like about community and about process, So that's been more our focus so far, but I think that's a pretty interesting question.
3: Yeah, I I think that one of the things that we're trying to do is to locate the center in relation, like we were talking about earlier, to different constituencies as they connect to the literary arts from the publishing level, from the creative level. We're trying to establish a St. Louis literary arts calendar in which we could connect with different partners in the city to highlight and to support what they're doing. So really open. And one of the things that we're doing is like we're inviting agents and we're going to invite some editors to come to campus and meet with students and meet with colleagues. So we haven't necessarily focused on the publishing side of what we're doing.
4: Yeah, but... Ignacio is right. Actually, the professionalizing part of what we're doing is, is really important to us because there's no programs doing that with students on campus. And so bringing in agents, bringing in editors has been, I think the students have been really excited and grateful to have those conversations and start to learn about the publishing world, which is usually like completely opaque and baffling to them. But honestly, a lot of faculty showed up to those too and have questions of their own. So I, I do think that is really important work.
1: Yeah. I, from the reception of Dan Sennekin's work recently, who's been, who has this new book that's coming out and has been publishing ex- excerpts of it about the conglomeration of publishing over the last half century, the way that people who are very well versed in American literature, how shocked they have been by the revelations in that book suggests that even scholars in 20th century literature, broadly conceived, still are very unfamiliar with publishing. <laughs> so absolutely, even if you're not actively trying to place the work produced in the the center's workshop with a particular publisher or with a particular magazine or anything like that, the mere fact that you're bringing in people who are involved in the industry in some way and allowing faculty and students to engage with them and get their perspective. I think that's been missing oftentimes from academia entirely.
3: Yeah, I'm a big fan of Dan's book. And one thing that I've been thinking about is to explain how conglomeration works, how influential it is. I think supporting independent presses is something that we're really committed. So I did a translation with Michael Leon that came out with Coin Press, which is nearby as Normal, Illinois. And they've done amazing translation work. And one of the things that in terms of Dan's book that I think is important is that conglomeration is exported too. There's a whole side of the industry that is using translation. So these conglomerates that Dan's book is, is exploring is, is operating in international markets through translation. So, you know, the press that I work as a literary translator a long time ago, is is, is essentially how some of these conglomerates are operating through multilingual markets as well. So having that experience and being able to transmit that to colleagues and students and to explain that, it's really fascinating, but at the same time, it's really necessary to fill those gaps that you mentioned earlier.
1: That's clearly part of the ethos of the center as well, is this sort of multilingualism. And how how are you thinking about that component of the center bringing together? You mentioned that your first class of scholars in the workshop are are from these various departments studying different literary traditions, both temporarily and geographically, and and, and truly global and multi-ethnic. That strikes me as a very ambitious charge. What, What are some of the techniques or strategies you are using to try to, to fill it.
4: It is already happening in the workshop because June Lee is translating from Korean and she's brought people into the workshop from her own department to be part of our conversations. That multilingual conversation is already starting to happen in our very first creative practice workshop. So that's Excited, And I think a lot of it will just happen organically in that way, but I think we're still trying to figure out more ways that the center could be more multilingual and support, especially translation students on campus.
3: Yeah, so highlighting the work of translators, one of the things that was really amazing about Washi when when I arrived here was that there's already a a legacy of, of literary translation in different departments. That has been maintained in terms of faculty who are also doing translation. Highlighting that, I think another area of really interesting possibilities is not only collaboration between translation studies and creative MFA programs, creative writing MFA programs, but also to highlight that at the teaching level, we're teaching undergrads and grad students who are highly multilingual. Now, that creates a really fascinating opportunity because... Why not bringing that multilingual dimension to both the study of languages and literatures, but also the creative writing framework that has been traditionally monolingual and highlighting those opportunities. We're going to go do AWP in collaboration with the MFA program, and we're hoping to highlight the work of different faculty and students in different departments and different programs and make those connections more visible in in a space like AWP. There's a lot of work to be done, I think, in that area. And I think these these synergies and rethinking both models, like foreign language teaching with creative writing, seems like a really exciting moment as well, and an opportunity.
1: Yeah, it sounds really exciting. Maybe just each of you... Could try to describe a project that's happening in these early stages, just so that our listeners can have a taste of what is sort of actually going on here. In addition to the sort of meta questions that the center is posing, what is likely to be produced in this sort of inaugural year of actual function?
4: so many things. We had an amazing series of events last spring where we brought in the writer and translator, Anna Moskovakis, and her agent, Akadakinwumi. And we had a panel using both of them and also people on campus, like for how do you live as a writer outside of the classroom that was extremely popular with students. We had like really heartfelt, serious conversations in the room. And then Anna gave an incredible talk. And what, and we brought translators and creative writers and all different kinds of people out. And then this talk with her agent. And okay, I'm not even going to stop there because. This semester, we're having our first ever collaboration with the Kemper Art Museum on campus that we're super excited about because we really want the center, our center, to be an inter-arts kind of space. And I teach and write a lot about image-text relationships. And so I'm especially excited about this. So next weekend, we're bringing in the poet Simone White, and she's gonna be giving a reading at the museum in conjunction with their exhibit of Adam Pendleton, whose work she's been in conversation with. And she's gonna give a talk about poetry and image and his work in particular and then read from new poems. And then the following morning we're having a workshop for students where they get to work with some local printmakers on inspired by some of Adam Pendleton's work to do like DIY print projects using their own writing. So that's just one thing that would never have existed, the sort of collaborative image text experience on campus. Yeah,
1: multimedia no, it's exciting. That's really cool. Yeah, no, that's hard
3: to top. But we're really excited about the community ideas that we have. So I think going to AWP as a center to be able to connect with different the literary arts community nationally and showcase the work that we do, but also find other people and see what other centers are doing. We're really excited about that. And then finally, I will add this idea that it's becoming reality, which is to create a St. Louis literary arts calendar in which we could really connect with the community, support the community, and highlight some of the work that is done in the city, uh, outside of the university, It's something that for us is, is fundamental, but really to put St. Louis on the map of the literary arts community, nationally and internationally.
1: As Harry Stakopoulos noted last episode, One of the featured speakers in his Fate of Professional Reading series, as well as our Criticism Limited, Brian Ruby, made the unusual transition from creative writer to critic. This will be my last question, although I could go on talking to you for a long time. No, this is fun. I know that. You too, yeah. yeah. I think the question that I, I have to ask, following that discussion of hybrid criticism, the things we've been talking about, Do they explain what appears to me in your own career to be a move towards criticism? You have a novel, you have a book of poetry, and it seems that only after those things were published did you start to characterize yourself as foremost a working critic. And I wondered to what extent some of the things that we've been talking about, the cross pollinating media environment and the way in which it favors criticism, the forms of immediacy that are perhaps preferred in our hyper-distracted age, to what extent was... The work you did as a novelist and poet, ongoing work, and you see yourself returning to it. To what extent was it preparation to do criticism? and maybe, or, or to what extent is it just a practical strategy to face the current environment in which you have to make
5: a living? Yeah, the answer to your question is it's all three of those things. Take them backwards. The reason I became a critic is of a, of a very unromantic and contingent circumstance, which is that in April 2020, I ran out of money and I was confined to my house. And for various different reasons specific to my particular situation as an immigrant in Germany, the one thing that I was legally allowed to do, and then the only thing I had at my disposal to do, was to write. Working as a writer in some capacity was at the time tied to my visa status in Germany. The pandemic comes around, I've run out of money. I had to make a certain amount of money that year, a very little, tiny little bit amount of money to stay on my healthcare. Since I was a freelancer, it it is not tied to any employer. Mm -hmm. I won't get into the nitty gritties of the German healthcare system, but you have to make a certain amount of money in the thing to which you are working and receiving healthcare to be regarded as a professional and not a hobbyist. Mm And that was a very small amount of money, and I needed to do it. Obviously, there was a large global, and so it took on an, an extreme amount of importance at the time. And so what I had at my disposal was a publication record, and I'd written criticism before in a much more sporadic and occasional way. It was just simply making a virtue of necessity to do that on a regular basis. So that's the very unromantic story of how a particular phase of my writing career came to be. Previous to that, of course, as you mentioned, I'd written a novel. Uh, the novel itself is a gothic novel of ideas. The problem is the problem of suicide. And it's an exploration of that in narrative form. And it has a, a number of discursive elements in it. And one of the things that attracted me to this particular book was that I could do for philosophy by other means in this sort of novel form, which is obviously by no means a rare way of looking at the novel, but certainly not the main rationale for novelistic production, which is primarily narrative. Anyway, that novel did not do well, (laughs) and no one was asking me to write another novel. If your novel does well, that's a contractual issue, right? So like, you can imagine your novel doing really well, it's a breakout hit, you can then write a book proposal for your next novel, and that's much more easy to sell. So that didn't happen. And then I complicated that problem by blowing through the rest of the advance that I had, spending two years writing a poem, (laughs) which, as I don't need to tell you, is a very poor economic decision. But I did it because I was just following my interest in in the particular subject matter. I got unusually obsessed to create this thing. The poem is going to be Published, I can't say with whom yet, but it will finally see the light of day in its full form. Um, I wanted to ask you. yeah, and that's going to hopefully come out either next year or the year that, thereafter. But just at the period of time in which it was written, from about 2018 to early 2020. That was good time that I spent working in a guaranteed low-remuneration genre. <laughs> in doing so, however, I gave myself a sort of research course in the history of Western poetry, which has proved useful to me thereafter. So when it became time to work as a critic for the contingent reasons that I laid out earlier. I definitely drew on my experience of writing a novel, publishing a novel. That informs the way I read novels. Uh, I read them as a practitioner. I think about the particular choices the novelists make. I imagine what choices may have been edited out. I imagine what it might've looked like as a first draft. I had front row seats to the reading of the particular mode of production of how, or how novels are, are marketed sold positioned their places commodities the opaque and potentially impenetrable from the outside publishing industry and what all of these particular paratextual signs and signifiers might mean and that certainly informs the kinds of novels i choose to write about and my approach to them especially for the contemporary english language fiction that i review and as for the poetry like i've done uh, a lot of poetry criticism and the poetry criticism that i've done very much comes out of the research that that i did i think of myself as being very interested when i work as a critic in Uh, media-based questions, right? What is this doing as a medium? What is the social function of this as poetry? And so the work that I've written about is very interested in both of these questions, and it's informed by a sort of long durée view of the the total history of poetry in the West. That's the framework with which I, I come to poetry that I write about and review. And of course, for example, In the Elliott piece, my major interest there was the publishing story. Mm -hmm. How that particular work, what were the economic conditions under which that incredibly strange work of art came to be and came to be disseminated and came to be received? And, of course, these are standard questions for academics, right? This is not by any means new. But that's the kind of thing that people really actually don't talk about in popular criticism mm-hmm. uh, and para-academic criticism that's being done outside of the academy. They're just looking at a work of art in purely biographical terms or mm-hmm. in purely terms of what it might say about its contemporary politics or, or whatnot. Those gen- genres are, yeah, I don't know, they, they can be vulgar. They can be unsophisticated. And so one of the great things about thinking about writing as an academic for a a popular audience is you can bring all these sort of kinds of considerations to work for a general audience. That was certainly my take on Elliot there, or my interest in those particular subjects was informed by being a person who had written and failed to, at the time, publish a poem in which Eliot figures as a sort of history of media and publishing, right? It's this sort of complex balancing of very quotidian concerns of how to make rent and how to pay for your health care with long-standing personal interests and personal relationships that you form with particular editors who will or won't allow you to engage in particular sorts of questions on a case-by-case basis. And that's all a, a sort of very complex tightrope of management of various different things, but taken together, and this is where I'll make a closing, one of, one of the, the great things that I read while researching that Eliot piece, of course, aside from your excellent essay on that piece, boy, did I love that essay, aside from that, T.J. Clark, right? T.J. Clark's wonderful Farewell to an Idea, in which he talks about the relationship of modernism as such, is a relationship to the contingencies of its own production. Mm -hmm. And I think that in this respect, one of the things that I'm calling the golden age of criticism is also very much a modernist moment in the history of criticism itself, whereby the contingencies of its production are very much being foregrounded formally in the production of a vast, exciting, on-the-fly creation of uh, critical works of art.
1: We opened this episode with Gerald Graff telling a story from one part of his long career. We're going to close with him talking about how that career began.
0: I also think that the political move in Lit Crit has gotten us into some unnecessary trouble. That's obviously a whole big issue has led to some of the defunding that's going on now.
1: Yeah, let's start there. Because yeah. I do think there's something a little bit counterintuitive about that. Because one of the things that you have celebrated and advocated over the years is for the teaching of critical controversies, right? And yeah. to my mind, many of those controversies are generated at least in part by ideological or political difference. And how do you see if we have become too political? as critics or as teachers. How has that shift happened in a way that isn't merely acknowledging the deep political divides and ideological differences that are present not only in literature itself, but in the, the critical development of literary studies over the last 150 yeah, years?
0: I've been a big advocate of presenting political issues, including issues on the politics of literature in the teaching of the humanities. But I think there's a big difference between presenting political issues as an open debate in which you acknowledge conservative as well as progressive views, as well as others in the middle and so forth. I've always advocated teaching political debate, raising political issues with students as a set of debates versus advocacy pedagogy, which at times I think at times, go so far, especially in some of the manifestos that are published about this under the names like Paulo Freire or Henry Giroux and Radical Pedagogy and so forth. Some of that work, it seems to me, makes some of the charges from the right of indoctrination or attempted indoctrination of students and gives those charges some force. It's just not fair to students, and students who have complained to me, they come to me and said, I know other faculty have said this too. Students come in and say, look, I'm a feminist, or I'm all for raising Marxist issues and so forth. I'm sympathetic to those points of view, but frankly, I find it offensive and obnoxious when I go into a class It's just taken for granted that we're all good liberals or all good radicals here, and that conservative viewpoints are just despicable automatically. Some may be, may be Right. <laughs> uh, I think it's not good for teachers to just assume that. So there was an op ed in the New York Times by the conservative op ed columnist uh, Ross Dutat, Dutat. I'm not sure. Dutat, yeah. Yeah. And he quotes a progressive academic, Tyler Austin Harper Base College, who I think put the point very succinctly, and this is in the context of the defunding of the humanities or the shift of funding from the humanities to STEM subjects in North Carolina. And uh, Harper posted a comment as follows. How did anyone think we could get away with being nakedly ideological for years without any chickens coming home to roost? Universities have always been tacitly left-leaning and faculty have always been openly so, but institutions have never been this transparently officially political. Almost every single job ad in my field has some kind of brazenly politicized language. And I think that puts the point very well.
1: It's a powerful and definitely a controversial position. And I think the natural question to follow up with is, at what point did that turn towards radicalism happen? Because it seems as though The kind of defunding of the humanities, the slow degradation and de skilling of the humanities has a trajectory that really goes all the way back to the 1960s. And so I guess my question would be at what point did we cross the Rubicon? and become too radical? Or is the politicization of the profession, the sort of moral panics associated with things like critical race theory and LGBTQ studies in recent years, aren't those just an extension of a process of defunding and de-skilling the humanities that goes back half a century now?
4: Let
0: me try to put that in some context, because I'm old enough, I started in the profession at a time that predated that political move in the 60s, or it was happening when I started teaching, 1963 was my first job, but I was in graduate school in the early 60s. And those political issues weren't at all conspicuous back then. But I wouldn't say we became too political. My advocacy of controversy comes into play here. If you're presenting a fair controversy with students, and if you have counter-voices in your classroom, inviting them to come in, who are challenging your own left-wing views. It seems to me it's legitimate to become as aggressive and advocate as you want. Where things get unfair and I think overly skewed is when you have the sole authority in the classroom is preaching a kind of politic where there's no counter-voice, so it's not a matter of becoming too political too radical it's becoming radical without a sufficient set of counter voices you know to be fair to your clientele to the students but let me back up and i was a beneficiary of the changes that happened in, in the 50s i applied to graduate schools when i got my b.a from the university of chicago in 1959 and i was turned down for money harvard stanford i can't remember a whole bunch of the schools and i was looking at the likelihood that I was going to have to do something else. When I was somewhat drifting, I didn't really have any particular ambition. I realized that I wasn't going to be a pro baseball player or basketball player, probably. And those were the occupations that seemed to me worthwhile. I had been pretty good. I thought I was pretty good at analyzing poems and Stories and so forth in my English classes, and so I applied for graduate school, but I was turned down. One day, though, I got a letter. This was 1950. I think this was 57 or 58 that I'd been awarded a National Defense Education Act fellowship to Stanford. Three years, everything paid for. Very luxurious fellowship to go to Stanford, which is seemed a utopian place in my Chicago background. And this, of course, the NDEA fellowships were established in the wake of the Russians orbiting, Soviet Union or, orbiting Sputnik in 1957, which created this panic that the Soviets were outstripping us in sciences. And of course, as these things work, the sciences got this huge amount of money, but a lot of that money spilled over to the humanities. So suddenly at the end of the 50s, and I think this perhaps was beginning a little earlier after the Second World War, where the system was beginning to expand, money was being poured in. But my point is that we were suddenly at the end of the 50s and early 60s, and the humanities allowed to undertake this massive expansion of programs. And I remember hearing about universities that would be hiring like three or four medievalists in the English department because they were looking for ways to spend the money. They would hire three or four, maybe maybe I'm exaggerating, but it seemed you could hire like all these faculty members, set them loose, they didn't have to have anything to do with each other, you didn't have to correlate them or have any kind of organized program, you could just expand indefinitely. And I remember uh, we all assumed, or at least I felt, that was going to last forever. That seemed the way things were going to go. There was this commitment to fund the humanities, and I should have mentioned, my fellowship was in the study of English and American literature. American was stressed because it was felt that I'm not sure you, you know about this, it was felt that the study of American literature somehow played an important role in competing with the Russians for Sputnik. You know, there's a the kind of cultural nationalism behind that. So that's how I got my PhD in English and American literature and became sort of an Americanist, although my main because tended to be on literary criticism later on, on composition, but anyway, my point is that we got used to the assumption that not only we deserve to be municipally funded, but that this would last forever. And of course, all that suddenly and shockingly dropped out and stopped around. I dated from around seventy-three or the early seventies, and we've been going downhill ever since. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that there was a certain blindness on the assumption that we deserve to be heavily funded and would always be. And then there's this disappointment and anger, which is certainly understandable in the wake of all the cuts. And of course, PhD programs were allowed to balloon during this period. so that department like Northwestern would admit 50 PhD students or something like that, which of course became a disaster when the market, Dried up in the 70s, and we've been, of course, struggling ever since. Maybe this puts into some of the context the question. We could have been a little more canny about what was going on and seen what was going on and been a little bit more strategic about how we could have coped with this financial disaster. It's not exactly a surprise. If you think about it, the cushy conditions that we were allowed to enjoy for a couple of decades didn't really figure to last all that long unless we did something, figured out how can we sustain this situation. The other piece of the puzzle for me, and I've written about this recently, this would be my view now, that one place where we really missed the boat, I think, and we're still missing the boat, is failing to take advantage of the potential vocational merits of studying the humanity, which I think are large at a time when it's become a cliche in business and government and the professions that critical thinking skills of the kind that humanists like to feel we are particularly good at modeling and teaching. At the time, that's become kind of a cliche that you hire humanist graduates, they're gonna outstrip management graduates in jobs in business and the professions. We don't take advantage of that at all. If anything, it's almost an embarrassment to us if somebody finds this really useful. (laughs) Oh God, we're selling out and we're being co-opted.
1: That was the second part of The Empire of Criticism, the finale trilogy to Criticism Limited, the eighth season of the American Vandal podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. For more information about our guests and a complete bibliography for the finale, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash empire of Criticism, or subscribe to my Substack feed. I'm Matt Siebel. Thanks for listening.